for almost all the games, I go to American Whiskey. And yeah, we get like 500 people in there. Like for Notre Dame this weekend, we the place was slap full and we had a line down the block outside. There's a ton of dog fans here. Welcome, everybody. You are listening to episode 195 of the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. This is Tony Waller. Today, we have a spotlight series with Amanda Mall. Amanda is a University of Georgia Grady College of Journalism graduate who is a staff writer for The Atlantic. You've seen her work in Rolling Stone, Elle, Racked and Glamour, among other places. And she's a noted stand for making phone calls instead of texting, which I'm completely here for. Okay, Amanda, um, I want to say how much of an honor it is I have Amanda Mall, who is an Atlantean living in Brooklyn. Um, you are the health and culture staff writer for The Atlantic on their science, health, and tech reporting team. Did I get all that right? I am one of our health writers on our health desk. Uh, and, like, the health desk is part of, like, the larger side tech health team. It's, like, sort of confusingly set up. But I sort of write about the intersection of health and culture. Cool. And that's been your jam pretty much since you went to New York. Well, I started out in the fashion industry um, it's sort of like a day job. But since I started freelance writing, I have written a lot about how people sort of think about themselves and think about their bodies and, you know, how people uh, conceptualize their bodily interactions with the world, which is a weird beat and it's hard to describe. But yes, I've been writing about stuff sort of similar to this for a while now. Well, having been somebody who has had a substantial body his whole life, I'd do kind of appreciate your writing just because in a lot of ways it's hard to fat shame me just because yeah ha ha you know you're pointing the most obvious thing about me but on the other hand i really love your takes on it because you really get at kind of america's obsession with body size and i think it's really it's really cool writing i think it's very accessible for anybody so love what you do there um also you're big you're also have recently got on a um started standing for phone calls instead of texting, which I'm here for. That is so much my brand, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I uh, Texting, just, you know, it's not it's not as rich as or as, like, emotionally textured as, as just talking to someone. Talking to people is nice. Yeah, I think it's, it's a lost art. So, now, when were you at Georgia? I was at Georgia from 2004 to 2000. I technically graduated in 2009 with a because I uh, put off a last like online course. I can't remember if it was economics or Italian. I took both of those online, but I failed the final for one of them because I didn't study um, and had to like apply to retake it. But I don't remember which one of those it was. So you know, like a classic University of Georgia story. <laughs> <laughs> so you took two. No, well, I guess it's online. Did, please tell me you stayed in Athens or went somewhere awesome. Oh, yeah. I uh, I stayed in Athens for an extra two years after I graduated. <laughs> All right. I like two victory laps. That's nothing wrong with that in my mind. So unless we're talking about my kids, my kids happen to listen to this. Let's not be that guy. Um, <laughs> so so you were were you a journalism major? I was. I was a magazine journalism major, which at this point in time sounds like saying you, you know, majored in eight tracks. <laughs> <laughs> tapes or something like that. But now I actually work in a magazine, which is uh, unlikely. Irony is not lost there. Um, so yeah, in, so what was your favorite University of Georgia student memory or Athens memory? That's a good question. There was a lot of fun Athens stuff. I think... Uh, well, maybe, maybe it's a lack of a memory. I don't know. 
There are definitely a lot of fuzzy points in my time in Athens. But I think I was my senior year was the Auburn blackout game. And it's hard to it's hard to beat that as far as like stuff that went on while I was in school, while I lived in Athens. That one it was my probably my best like Georgia fan experience until I went to the Rose Bowl in 2018. Yeah, it's interesting. Scott uh, Duvall on our podcast Sunday asked, "Was the game against Notre Dame our like our like the best game day experience that we've ever had?" I was at the University of Illinois in 2000, uh, whenever the Auburn game was seven, right, 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did not come down for that game, much to my regret. Uh, so I had to say, you know, honestly, that I th- felt like the Rose Bowl was, and frankly, the Notre Dame game in South Bend was probably a little better as far as an overall, just because of, of the meaning of it. But certainly outside the 2017 season, I told him that the Notre Dame game was. But he quickly opined that the Auburn game, to him, was just, it was different just because of the blackout. So I could see that. Yeah, it was so cool to see because it was the first time we had ever done it. And then there was, and it just sort of like all came about organically which I think made it sort of special. Like, I don't, I don't think that there was any, any big, you know, decision at the beginning of the season to do that. Like the season had not like gone that well in the early, early parts. So it was just sort of like, like a really like fun, special thing that sort of just happened and didn't start out being planned to happen. And I think that made it very special and sort of rare in college football at this point, because, you know, everything is branded. Everything is, uh, a marketing opportunity. Everything is something, but the 2007 blackout just sort of like came about, and then we absolutely kicked the shit out of Auburn on top of it, which was even better. <laughs> which is never ever a bad thing. Um, no, so, it's the cherry. Yeah, cherry on top. That's exactly right. So one of the things I'm always interested in, um, because I can specifically point to when I became a, a Georgia fan. Were you a Georgia football fan before you came to school, or did this become obsession is probably my word not yours but did this become your thing while you were in school or did you did you come to school knowing you were a Georgia fan I have been a Georgia fan my whole life Uh, my dad went to Georgia and is a huge football guy so I was going to games as a kid I went to my first Georgia football game in the womb much to my mother's chagrin because she um went to Auburn (laughs) Uh, but she's she was and always has been a good sport. But yeah, I uh, you know there there are pictures of me at picture day when I was a kid uh, with Uga. There are pictures of my little brother being held by Vince Dooley. My little brother's not really into football, so I think when that became clear that that he was not going to be the football fan. But I have always liked sports. My my dad just sort of embraced that reality, and and it's been a it's been a big thing you know, my entire life. Well, I mean, I, I think it shows, it's interesting how, you're one of my favorite followers on Twitter, and I'll be sure to mention your Twitter account, just because you have, um, you kind of capture the the feeling, I think a lot of people who do not live in Georgia or don't have the opportunity to come to a lot of games, almost, uh, it's almost a visceral sense of belonging that you capture in a really cool way. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of you that do that, but I think you really capture it, especially kind of living your life in New York and also being a huge Georgia fan. So I wanted to compliment you on that. Oh, thank you. So uh, speaking of New York, how did you end up up there? Did you go up there? Was it intentional? You got lost on the, on the Greyhound bus. What happened? <laughs> well, it was sort of a spur of the moment decision. After I moved out of Athens, a friend of mine who was supposed to graduate from Athens during like the summer semester 
her plans changed. So we weren't going to be able to get an apartment together in Atlanta anymore. Um, so I had been living with my parents for a couple months, just waiting for her to graduate so that we could become roommates. Uh, cause my lease had, had ended and I was working for, I was writing, you know, blog posts for a company, um, that covered the fashion industry and they were planning on moving the company to New York and the, the owners of the company were going to move. They hadn't asked me to move. It was not required. Uh, but I was talking with my mom and she was like, you know what, you should just move to New York. And I was like, you know what? You're right. So I did. Um, I, you know, uh, I've always been a pretty decisive person. So that was in 2010. Uh, and then I moved up here a couple months later in 2011. Uh, and I've been here ever since. Have you been in Brooklyn the whole time? No, the first three years I lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and then for the five plus years since then, I've been in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Oh, okay. So you did not discover avocado toast in 2014. No, it's been here the entire time. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm curious, how do you, I mean, look, you're, I, I consider you be avant-garde and, you know, quite the millennial. So what's it like living in Brooklyn? I mean, I have to assume a lot of our listenership either has a, a sense of disdain or just not a lot, not a lot of knowledge about, I, I, I for one, am a a fan. Uh, I like New York a lot. Um, I don't think I could live there for longer than a couple of months. But if your memories of Brooklyn are um, NYPD blue and, you know, riots before a Yankees game, it's a whole different thing. I think what I would tell anybody about Brooklyn is that it's a lot more regular than you would anticipate, maybe. Like the, the thing about New York that makes it feel so different than most other American cities, I think, is that everybody is just really on top of each other. That you know, presents logistical problems, but it also makes some things really great. And it means that you interact with your neighbors. It means that you, you know, you see people all the time, which means that you're sort of confronted with, with both some of their annoying qualities and some of, and, and some of their good qualities living, you know, off of any particular subway stop in, in most parts of New York, not even just Brooklyn is like living in a small town unto itself. You know, I'm a regular everywhere around my subway stop. I've lived here for five years. Um, it has like some small town qualities to it that I think people don't anticipate. But once you like live in the residential parts of New York, it, it, that becomes really clear. Uh, a lot of people who visit just go to the most awful, the most annoying parts of the city, like parts that I do everything I, I can to avoid going to. I don't, I understand why, you know, tourists get shuttled into those parts of the city, but if you only go to places that, you know, to, to Midtown or to the Financial District or places like that, I, I can see why people would have a negative view of New York. But, you know, Brooklyn is very residential. It's a lot of normal people. There's a lot of, you know, it's very millennial in parts. But Brooklyn, if it was its own, its own city, it would be like the fourth biggest city in the country. There's a lot of variation here, too. There's a lot of, you know, it's not just white millennials. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, there's a ton of, I mean, there's a fairly li- big uh, UGA diaspora there, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the New York City alumni base is the largest one outside of the state of Georgia. And, you know, New York City has a lot of jobs and a lot of industries that, that Georgia, you know, overperforms at. They have, there's a lot of finance jobs here. There's a lot of journalism jobs here. Uh, so when you sort of look at it, it makes sense that a lot of, you know, people who are already from the East Coast and went to a college that produces a lot of people who work in those industries would migrate up here. 
um, you know, the, at the Georgia bar in Manhattan, the main one, we get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people every weekend. That's American whiskey. Yes. American whiskey in Chelsea. Is that where you normally go to watch games? Yes. I, uh, I'm on the New York city alumni board. It's good fun. There's, there's like 12 or 13 of us and we, uh, help run alumni events, including the game watch parties. So, uh, for almost all the games I go to American whiskey and, uh, and yeah, we get like 500 people in there. Like for Notre Dame this weekend, we the place was slap full, and we had a line down the block outside. There's a ton of dog fans here. Well, you should never bark alone. So, you know, look, I I, I was a big fan. I, I remember when I lived in Illinois, going to I think I went to Indianapolis to watch God, an awful South Carolina game. Maybe <laughs> it's it's '08. Oh gosh, I, one of the things I did want to talk to you about was the American whiskey. The scene in American whiskey, particularly in 2007, it almost became a, na- a national story in a way. It certainly was a big, you know, UGA local story. Um, h- how did that come about? Um, well, every major uh, sports school has a has an official bar in New York. There are so many bars here, and so many people who are who have moved here from somewhere else that there is like a, a generalized culture of that anyway. And we used to, we used to have a place in the East village, but there was too many UGA alumni here. So we had to wait for a larger bar to open. And, uh, that's how we moved to American whiskey. And it's one of the biggest bars I've been to in New York. And we could, we could have a bigger bar, you know? Um, we have a Facebook group and we have Instagram account and Twitter and, and a a listserv of local alumni. And we just try to, you know, rally everybody we can to come out and, uh, and it's just really nice to be around people with a common cultural context about football and about just everything. You know, the Northeast really does not have any college football culture, uh, but New York City has a lot of college football fans. So it's just really nice to, like, not have to sit on your couch by yourself and, you know, lose your mind over this thing that nobody around you has any idea what it is. It's almost, like, soothing to just be able to do it with other people who get it. Yeah, it's so fun. I came really close last year to going up there for the Georgia-Florida game. I was in D.C. for work, um, and it just – I wanted to go to Pen Quarter, which was fine. Uh, it was it was a good time, but it wasn't it wasn't quite what I was expecting, and it was probably just because the – oh, man, the, the, just because I'm, I'm no good at games if I'm not at the game. I'm actually not real good if I'm at the game either, but uh, – but I mm-hmm. wish I had kind of kind of wish I'd gone up there now just because, yeah, you can jump on the train and be I mean, you can get in a cell in what, an hour and 45 minutes from from D.C. to Atlanta uh, to New York. So uh, I, I, I considered well, I live in D.C. I used to drive to New York City just to go. Um, so uh, I, yeah, it was, it's funny. In 2017, I want to say the last game of the season, whoever it was, we played at home that year. Um, we. End up the like a couple of the guys that are like the key players of American whiskey. I don't remember who it is now. Uh, they end up sitting right behind us at the football game, and just remember having a long conversation with them about the whole the whole deal. Um, so, and I, I think it's awesome. I mean, if you, I mean, you you're probably I mean you've been in New York for almost what nine years now. It really does help you connect, right? Yeah, it's just like a really nice thing because the sort of the struggle of living in a city this big is, is just like finding your people. 
um, because there's, there's people here for everybody. There's people, there's all kinds of people here from all kinds of backgrounds and, you know, American whiskey and having the bar and everything is just like a, a super fun way to like make that easier. So, and we try to, the, the alumni board up here tries to, you know, welcome people who have just moved to the city and, you know, any, any recent grads who are up here, uh, to make their landing a little bit softer because, you know, it can, it can be an inhospitable place if you don't know how to, don't know how to navigate it. But yeah, it's just like a really nice thing to have. It would, you know, by the time we get to summer and, and college football is getting closed, I, I really start to crave it because it's so much fun and it's just, you know. Just nice to see everybody. It's just really cool to be able to be around your people. And I think that's probably the best part about all of those. And, you know, listen, if you're if you're a listener, and I'm sure you know this, but, I mean, UGA Alumni Association has these watch parties all over the country. Um, so please don't miss out on the opportunity to do that because it's there's something special about being around your people, even if it's just a few people, um, whether you win or lose, because I remember being in Indianapolis and thinking, at least I have people to commiserate with. So. Yeah, it's really great. Besides the the bar in New York, I've been to the Georgia bar in San Francisco. It's the bus stop in Cow Hollow. And uh, I was there for a Georgia-Florida game a couple years ago that we lost. Uh, but I was just, you know, blown away by how many how many Georgia people there were in San Francisco. And, and it, you know, if, you, if you're going to sit through a loss, it might as well be with, like you said, with your people. Um, the Georgia bar in New York makes living in New York – a lot more possible for me, I think. Well, that in uh, that in the bagels. Um, that's one thing I'll yeah. say that uh, you know. I oftentimes make jokes on social media, particularly on Twitter, about New York discovering whatever is next, just because there is a very. And I'm sure, you you know this. Um, uh, actually, I kind of want to ask you about this. Now, I think about it. The the whole you know, it's it's not really a thing until New York discovers it. Uh, attitude, especially about food. Um, so I'm really interested because I think one of the things that that it, I don't know, I don't follow your metrics, so I don't really know. Can't say this with certainty, but it feels like the piece you wrote on biscuits kind of blew up in a way that was interesting. Um, how you know, how do you handle the quote unquote dumb southerner? And I, I don't mean that. I guess I don't mean that in pejorative way because sometimes it's asking out of honest and disintelligence. I guess how do you handle that? It's interesting because at this point, a lot of people who meet me up here meet me before they find out I'm a Southerner. So I think that sometimes there is sort of a level of surprise because, you know. Which does say something also, right? Right, right. Yeah. I think that there is sometimes a level of surprise being like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed that or, you know, something. And I'm like, oh, I understand what you're implying here you know, that you've already decided that I'm smart and you would have assumed I wouldn't be if you had known up front that I'm from Georgia. You know, it's interesting. And it, the longer I live here, the more it bothers me, you know, and it bothered me a lot at the beginning, but it, it only gets worse. It only gets more annoying. People who live in the Northeast and have never had any significant experience with any other part of the country are the most annoying people alive. Because not only do they do they not know about anywhere else, but they, they assume that they do, I think. They assume that living in the Northeast gives them, you know, a good a, a good impression of, of everywhere else and, and, you know, enough knowledge of everywhere else so they don't have to actually learn about anything or any anybody else. 
which is exactly the argument that a lot of people make about Southerners, right? That, you know, right. We, we, we don't bother to learn stuff. It's just, it's interesting to me how you handle it. And I don't want you to share stuff that if it picks at old wounds, but you actually caught a lot of flack about the biscuit article you wrote back. That would have been like last year, Thanksgiving, right? Right. Yeah. And like, you know, I'm, I'm used to a certain amount of it because if you, if you write for a national publication, you're going to write, you're going to catch some sort of flack about anything you write. I have a pretty thick skin about stuff like that. It does not, it does not really get to me. But the, the thing that New Yorkers in particular hate is the implication that someplace else might do something better than them. Uh, because I think to live here, to, living here is hard. I, I have loved my time here, but living here is hard. And I think that for a lot of people, in order to justify living here, you have to create this you know, impression in your own head that like, well, it's hard, but living here gets you the best of everything. It gives you access to all the good things. It gives you access to, you know, to the types of things that are not available elsewhere. So any implication, whether it's by Californians, whether it's by Texans, whether it's by Southerners talking about biscuits, that actually something something here is not very good and that it might be not as good as, as a version of the same thing made elsewhere sort of picks away at that part of people's identity a little bit. And people respond negatively when that happens. But that's fine. That's for them and their therapist to work out. That's not my <laughs> issue. <laughs> I think that's a very healthy way of looking at it. So, And how long have you been with The Atlantic? I've been with them a little less than a year. It'll be a year next month. Okay, so that was one of your first articles then. Yeah, it was pretty – it was uh, toward the beginning, definitely. Okay. And now how did you end up with Atlantic? Is this something you pursued or did they come after you? I had done a bunch of freelance stuff that had done really well. Uh, a lot of it for uh, Racked, R.I.P., which is now part of Box.com. As is everything, right? Yeah. Um, I had done a lot of freelance stuff that had done well and that was sort of about this uh, sort of cultural health set of topics. Uh, so my current editor, Paul Baselio, emailed me, just like Cold emailed me told me he was a fan of my work, said that they had a job opening that he would love for me to talk to him about. Um, and it sort of went from there. I didn't know at first if I really wanted a new job, but every step of the way, everybody at The Atlantic made real clear that, that they were really interested in the stuff I liked to do, the stuff that I found most re- rewarding about the, the work I had done. So it, by the end, it was sort of a no-brainer. Well, certainly if they uh, – a magazine, especially since that's what you majored in, um, of uh, stature and actually, you know, you got to feel a little good about it because they're known for their writing. And that's I, – I, as a Georgia grad, a co-Georgia grad, I'm very proud of you um, that you're going out and doing <laughs> that just because – look, I think you have very interesting tastes. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I think you have um, extraordinarily um, – big-minded views, and you have a very interesting way of framing things and thinking about them, and it's uh, you do a very good job with it. Well, thank you. Yeah, and The Atlantic really encourages that. It's one of the best things about working there. Awesome. So before we wrap up, is there anything coming down the pike you want to you like make sure our listeners pay attention to or anything that you want to talk about uh, you know, from your work at Atlantic or other places you're proud of? Let's see. No, there's nothing like a cold call. It's just like, hey, Amanda, talk about stuff that you might not be able to talk about yet or that you really wish you had started writing last weekend. 
<laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've got some fun stuff coming up before the end of the year that I can't really say more about, but look out for that. It'll be all over my Twitter account when, when it can be talked about in more detail. But yeah, I publish like usually like at least a couple times a week. So there's always something new. There's always something churning about God knows what topic. One of the best things about my beat is that I have free range over a lot of different topics. So it's a lot of fun to be able to explore a lot of different areas of culture. And where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, I am at Amanda Mull, M-U-L-L, just my name. Just your name. Are there other places that uh, we can find your work, or is Twitter the best place to catch up to you? Uh, Twitter is the best place. I have an Instagram account under the same name, um, and then I'm always I'm always at the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to ask about Midge. Oh well, how's Midge? Um. <laughs> <laughs> She's good. She's happy. She's happy that I'm sick because it means I work from home. <laughs> yeah. What do you do with her when she is uh, when you're on the road? Uh, I have a dog sitter who comes and sits with her. Okay. Because she doesn't strike me as the type that you just like leave food out for in the morning and then in the evening. Um, it, it, unless you're projecting a, a persona of her differently, uh, she seems a little more needy than that. Well, it's funny because like she she tends to ignore me a lot. <laughs> um, she, she definitely is a dog who likes her independence. But then also sometimes she, you know, when she wants attention, she wants it. But when I'm, when I'm gone, I, there's a lady who lives around the block who, uh, I pay to come and stay with her and hang out. Mitch does not like anybody but me, but she does need someone to stay with her. So <laughs> she'll, to- she'll tolerate the help. Um, yeah. <laughs> I get that. So, well, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time you, and anytime you come to Athens, we, uh, we'll have a, we'll have a place. Of course you have 900 tailgates to go to. We'll have a place at the tailgate for you. So appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And my thanks to Amanda for joining me. As Amanda mentioned, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Amanda Mull. That's A-M-A-N-D-A-M-U-L-L. And you can read her work at The Atlantic. A couple of quick housekeeping notes. We will not have a regular weekly podcast this week because of the off week. Be sure to get your fun office pools picks in. Right now, Ray136 is our current overall leader, while I continue to lead Will and Scott in our rankings. Also, don't forget, Eastside Eats is this Sunday afternoon at the YWCO on Research Drive in Athens. You can bid online for a dinner for four with the three of us. Check out my Twitter, at Tyler Dogden, for information on that. Proceeds go to support the YWCO's Girls Club, which provides summer activities and education for local Athens youth. We will be back next week while we preview the dog's upcoming road trip for a night game at Nayland. As always, thank you and go dogs!